<laughs> what's up what's up everybody welcome to alpha wave after hours the podcast you did not ask for and did not want and we uh are here with me cody pierce and mark st john and we decided to do this podcast uh, why did we decide to do this podcast? Uh, because we probably haven't talked enough to each other over the past year. Um, that's not true. We so talk we, all the time. I uh, know. That's what I'm saying. And we wanted to share our pain with everyone else. It's kind of uh, a mental health exercise. Yeah. Just uh, shoot the shit. After uh, Alpha Wave After Hours is a podcast about cybersecurity but only partially. And I think one thing we wanted to do was, uh, you know, share our experiences and talk about the industry, but not necessarily get really dry and technical. So you won't learn anything by listening to us. Uh, But hopefully you will enjoy Mark and I's ramblings and come away with something. If nothing else, I think we would be successful if somebody somewhere in the world listened to us and said, if these dumbasses can make it, so can I. Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And part of my motivation as well is I'm always interested in hearing what got people into InfoSec as a hobby or a profession. Because it takes a certain weird person to actually want to do this for a living. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not glamorous, regardless of all the cool movies and hoodies, but it's fun. And the type of people that you come across with and have conversations with, finding out their origin stories and, and more importantly, what other sort of weird projects they've spun off of personally and professionally is, is interesting to me. Yeah. I mean, we have known each other for 25 years. I think we met in 1996 or 97, 97. Yeah. Around there. Yeah. 1997. And I have, we've been in some form of technical role uh, but mostly cybersecurity as a career. Yeah. And I kind of always wanted to do cybersecurity as a career from when I was a kid and accidentally got a break into it in early into my IT career because nobody else was willing to be a technical janitor. Um, when things like, def- you know, early defacements came on and, FTP for wear sites. Nobody really wanted to deal with that. And I stuck my hand in that hot oven. And that kind of got my ball rolling professionally. Uh, yeah, there, there, there wasn't much of a cyber secure. I'm doing air quotes. So there wasn't much of a cybersecurity industry, I think, when we were getting started. There were certainly big AV vendors um, like network device vendors. But at least from what I remember, you couldn't just say, I'm going to be in cybersecurity. No, no, you can go do it. No, not at all. You either had to do network access control or deploy antivirus. That was really it. I think there were some companies early on who were, uh, a little bit more serious and had things rolled out like tripwire, you know, things that could do beyond just basic, you know, block and allow or hash checking. But it, it definitely uh, took a long time. I mean, I, it took almost 20 years. We got to witness it in real time um, of people not taking it seriously until they actually had to pay out, you know, uh, through sweat equity or some other kind of bad PR and started taking it seriously. And a lot of it has to do with it being a cost center. It's expensive to do security. Tools are expensive. People are expensive. The processes are expensive. And 
it took a long time for people to understand that it's just a necessity. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not convinced that people still find it a necessity. I think that a lot of folks are still doing just enough, whatever the compliance sheet tells them, whatever that checklist tells them. But at least that's, you know, sometimes going through the motions is, is, is better than not. Yeah. So we, we grew up in the Fort Worth, Texas area as young hackers in the nineties. How did, how did you get exposed to like, did, did y'all get a, a computer at home? Like what was your first well, introduction? I want to get one thing out of the way. I was never a hacker. I was 100% a script kitty. Um, but you were in the like scene. Yeah, of course. Of course. My dad was a programmer. Um, and so we always had computers around and I was always on them. And as a kid, the one thing I desired more than anything was new video games. And, you know, this was in the days of the BBS, the 2400 baud. And people were finding out, you know, they could trade video games. And I wanted in on that. So that got my toes dipped into uh, telephony, you know, because I couldn't afford long distance to get to the BBSs. Is that uh, where all the good, it, were you like looking for wares? Yeah, hell yeah, I was looking for wares. So you, at that you time, needed long, you needed to get on the big wares BBSs. Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah, it, it, Or you had to have a, a network of, of them that you could call because, you know, this is modem base so if one was busy because somebody's downloading wing commander they're going to be there for 20 hours downloading it <laughs> you know so you had to find another one so that got me into uh, learning you know div- diverters and and calling cards and you know i guess my script kittiness came from figuring out how to use certain tools to, to run scans and figure those out and then trade them out and i did that for a couple years and it, it helped a lot because in retrospect, that's actually how I learned what little bit of in- reverse engineering I know is because people just bought, you know, how, how were those early groups like the humble guys and USA Fairlight and Razor, like releasing uh, licensed software where you didn't have to use a license. And then you learn to figure out they were just doing debuggers and getting in there and figuring out where the keys were and then learning ways to bypass those and distribute it. So it was fascinating watching those really sharp people who could do the debugging actually go through and modify the software and then re-release these major titles, you know, these huge software packages. And then after that was the supply chain and the ecosystem of it all. You know, you had couriers and courier coordinators and all these different BBS networks. Meanwhile, you've got rival, rival groups, you know, launching, uh, trying to have their own because back then I don't think people realize it, but zero day, the term actually came from the piracy days. Is not an exploit driven. You know, zero day was first used as to who could get the software out first, right? Yeah. So that was a that was a big deal to see all that, like the the arms race just for the for the games. You know, it expanded, it got more aggressive over time, and there are always other people on the side too. You know, like the guys from Nuke, uh, Rocksteady, and those guys who were uh, releasing viruses at the time. TSRs, you know, the memory the the memory resident only ones, which would blow my mind. How, how they could write just little itty bitty memory resident stuff on DOS of all places, you know, that would abuse desk view and other things that people were using at the time and then spread around inside the binaries. So that was another way that I, helped me, helped forge me into the industry. I think what, was, was, wasn't there a dude that we grew up with that got like busted by the feds? Yeah, there was a couple of pirating. Them. Mm-hmm. He was like, yeah. do you remember who I'm talking about? Che- Chevelle. Yeah. Yeah, Chevelle. His handle was Chevelle. Because yeah, he drove a Chevelle. He bought a sh- old Chevelle um, with some of his earnings at the time from, from doing all that. Oh, he, he was getting paid? He, yeah, he got, he, uh, if I can recall this correctly, he was part of that crew that was releasing. There was a, a line you didn't cross, right? Like you could release games and the feds didn't care. But Chevelle got into releasing like, no. I think he was part of the Novell Guys, when they were releasing all the different Novell software, uh, they got into enterprise software, which is a. Oh, was that the line? Yeah, that was the line, and that. But how was he? How was he making money? Reselling it. Oh, they would resell it. Yeah, repackage, resell it. I remember he was like the first person I ever heard of that had multiple gigabytes. 
like oh, yeah. a really he had a T one mm-hmm. and he had this array of disk and he had multiple gigabytes. I that I don't even he might have had like a hundred gigabytes or even more, but I, I remember that being mind blowing because he was yeah. a big distributor. Yeah. So that whole scene went from a bunch of kids with, you know, modems that were, you know, 56k was the last one, and then ISDN really blew it up. And that and that's around the time that the internet started getting used. So it moved it moved to Usenet more frequently, it moved to FTP a lot more, uh, which made those guys more distributed and antiquated the old courier model. Instead, then you had dump sites. You know, that's where everybody was scanning Apache and you just taking over the, the like the directory transversal bugs where you had some write access and they would just dump all the wares up there and post a link for it. Yeah. yeah. So, like, they, they were using that to do the dish, distribution yep. and stuff. But he had, he had multiple lease lines, if I recall correctly. He had multiple locations where he had ISDN and some, and some like T-series T1s at the time. He had dropped in. And it was that's, just early. Yeah, that's big time. Was expanding. Uh, I, I know that a lot of those early game crackers were and still are some of the best reverse engineers and uh, vulnerability researchers. Because there were some things they were doing in the 90s that was kind of re in kind of reimagined in the security world like 10, 15 years later, especially in the virus scene, just using different hardware registers or tricks or whatever they could come up with. Uh, we're pretty advanced. I kind of, uh, I, maybe I was, I don't know if I was more into the hacking scene than you, um, but I certainly was in, Visiting all those boards, mostly reading text files. I played a few games, but I wasn't never really a, a quote unquote gamer, even when I was a kid. Um, I think maybe because I had a Nintendo, and like that was good enough for me. Yeah, <laughs> just like I didn't need to go searching for more. But what I did like were all the different text files and early um, freaking, mm-hmm. you know, box schematics. I built a red, like I built a red box. I built a Chrome box. That was the one that would change the street lights to green. Oh yeah. There's uh, how many different color boxes you think there were? Maybe 50. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's all kinds. The beige box. Oh, I definitely did beige box. Yeah. Where you can, you put the alligator clips on the line. Mm -hmm. You could listen or, divert or use it yeah we used to go on the side of houses because at the time i guess maybe still but nobody has a landline but you could go out to that to the side of the house and clip and clip in and listen to conversations and stuff mm-hmm. yeah remember like going out to like first saturday or other places just desperate to find an old lineman's headset those were like the the holy grail if you had one of those even just showing it off all the test equipment Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could find some really sketchy shit at First Saturday. First Saturday, for anybody listening, it, it still is. But Nobody's it, it, listening to this shit. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, the 80s and 90s was a huge, huge late-night electronics flea market. And you could buy anything. It opened up at midnight. Yeah. You could buy anything. It was... I miss, I miss that because at the time... And I got into cybersecurity through Unix system administration. And at the time, if you liked random hardware stuff, you know, random equipment, you could go there and, and find Solaris boxes, uh, IRIX, SGI. I guess SGI and IRIX are the same thing, but... You could find random things, and you know when you when we were curious and young, pulling together a hundred bucks to buy like a Spark Five was amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it also led to a lot of people harvesting those hard drives. That's why I'm still paranoid about hard drives to this day. Is people would just go and buy those drives in bulk and then rip what data they could off of them. 
I still have yeah. every hardware hard drive I think I've ever owned. And I that's like a box of old hard drives because I don't want to throw them away. I just imagine that uh, I don't I imagine that there's somebody in a trench coat going through the dump and finding oh, yeah. hard drives. Yeah, just digging them out. <laughs> like, <laughs> Leaving with a backpack full of old spindles and yeah, I don't have anything interesting on them, but I've I've thrown a lot of gear away, just not hard drives. In case somebody's dumpster diving outside, you need to do like a uh, like an old like Cajachina style or barrier. <clears throat> Build a big pit in your backyard and just fill it with thermite and magnets. What is Cajachina? Cajachina is one of the. It's like a big boxed smoker they use in like uh argentina oh they do it for like entire pig roasts oh right yeah i I could bury them i guess would that be that would be environmentally sound but no probably not but i could also just hit them with a hammer i'm also a data pack rat that's the other part to it like i keep as much data as i can from like i could probably go pull up remember when we lived together in 2001 at that house and we had we had a whole rack of systems that house can we can can you refer to it as its proper name casa de linux (laughs) it was a linux linux based household yeah it was a linux based household we were all i guess i might have been like 20 21 yeah right 20 mm-hmm. yeah around there it's like 2001 it was 20 and it was like three of us that loved computers and we had a whole rack of hardware routers and systems and you know we get shell on that and keep mp3s download from napster but i have i still have all those hard drives so i could give you i could give you your home directory from 2001 oh my god <laughs> I know mine had some like exploits and stuff in it, but beyond that, I, it maybe some really cringeworthy uh, early papers that I wrote or zine articles that I wrote. You got to go dig those up, repost them. I still go back and read old scene texts. Those are the best. You know, the, the, like what they've done at textfiles.org, like you can find everything. Because what were some of your favorite text files? I can tell you my favorite ever is the bow stuff, the Brotherhood of Wares, um, where it was Pluvius and Euphoria, and it was a complete mockery. Their whole goal was they were basically the onion, like National Lampoon of hacking and wares groups. So they would just release oh, like text file after text file of just uh, insane jokes and and the. the they would make so many puns and like references to other things. Uh, but they would also occasionally include actual technical information in them, which, which made it fun because you actually got something out of it, but it was just so ridiculous and over the top and ham fisted. You know, they had like the, the, the fake BBS names of like, where's my wares. And <laughs> yeah, it just like, it's like the, the hacking version of spinal tap. So the hacking kind of inside jokes and yeah yeah i don't want to say memes but it's pre-memes but yeah they're there and they're all up on text files i loved them and of course i loved of course i loved frack who 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 didn't love frack or doesn't love frack yeah that was that was definitely my favorite it still probably is yeah well i don't know if they still publish them they keep going up and down they've switched owners and i don't know what the deal is but there was always quality content. Go back, go back and look for psychedelic overlord. What was Beto O'Rourke's? Yeah, psychedelic the, overlord. Uh, yeah, he was in Cult of the Dead Cow. Was he yeah. in CDC or did he just? Assist I don't him? know. I don't know. I think maybe maybe adjacent to him. I wonder if he wrote that ever imagining he would run for president. Probably not. He probably didn't have that in mind as Psychedelic Overlord. You don't think Psychedelic Overlord was like, hmm, I better be careful. I could be president one day. Yeah, I could be president. I could be running for office and somebody's going to pop this up. Well, it's good that it's good that 
the rest of it wasn't put on social media pictures and what people were really doing and all kinds of debauchery. So all yeah. that's left is your, your zine writing history. Yeah. He could chalk it up to creative writing. I think of what he did. He should, he should have leaned in on that. He captured the imagination of the entire generation of that. You know, he did. I think, I don't think he denied it or anything. Oh, he didn't deny it, but he definitely didn't lean in on it. I mean, it's, you know, you run for president and your handle is psychedelic overlay. Yeah. Politicians are so milquetoast. That's what we need. We need, we need somebody who's willing to write articles about mushrooms or shell scripts, you know? There was such a melting pot of people that were on early bulletin boards and early FNET. Mm-hmm. Because oh, yeah. some of those zines were about drugs and not just hacking and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Just like the curiosity of it, people who were so deep into topics that they're willing to find other like-minded folks and just chat about those particular topics at length ad nauseum. You know, you had, there was a barrier to entry. This is a problem with a lot of different things these days. There's no barrier to entry. You know, you can publish a song, you can publish a paper or blog, you can put things on Instagram. But back then, there was a barrier to entry. So the only people that were successfully getting onto chat rooms and everything really wanted to. They had mm-hmm. to jump through all the hurdles and, you know, really figure out how to get on, get bitch X. That was my IRC client. Oh, yeah. Go find, go find bitch X. Set it up, connect your modem, and start hitting some IRC channels. Yeah, and it's kind of, I don't say gatekeepy, but you did have to be able to afford all the gear because computer equipment now is way less expensive than it was back then. That's so true. We, 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 probably, we probably lost a good chunk of people we could have had early on just because of the, the financials of it. But, I mean, geez, 100, 100 mega hard drives were 1000 bucks at one point, I remember. Yeah, that's that's true. When you think about how you got to where you are, part of it is luck and part of it's privilege, right? Mm-hmm. I the first computer we ever had was a three eighty six SX, and I think the difference oh, yeah. in SX and a DX is just a math coprocessor. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But we had that; it probably cost two thousand dollars. Oh yeah. You know, oh, so God. we were middle Easily. we were middle class with the computer and it was the perfect timing because I might have been 14 and I I had to have my mom type my school papers in chicks I didn't know how to type. So but just having like having that in the house really kind of sparked the curiosity. Oh yeah. It definitely it definitely gave me the leg up to at least be exposed to all the different oddities. And watching my dad grind away at software. My, my dad was an old punch card programmer and then eventually moved on to as, as languages evolved. But what do you do, like COBOL or Fortran? Oh, he definitely did COBOL. Um, and then I think he started doing like Visual Basic and C++ and when those came out. Pascal, he was a big Pascal guy when that came out, when that was all the rage. We, um, we had a computer, a computer class in high school and they taught pascal is pascal one of the only ones that's truly dead now i know that everybody's looking for cobol suddenly because all the banking infrastructure that still runs on it but you don't really hear anybody asking for pascal the only time i've heard anybody ask for a pascal programmer was in new jack city when when pookie goes to interview for the job and then Wesley Snipes' brother and that, I forgot his name. He's like, oh, can you program Pascal? And I was like, oh, man, computers are mainstream now. It's in New Jack City. Uh, There was a board called New Hack City. Oh, yeah. It might have been in New York. Um, It might have been Krim's board. I I don't remember. But to answer your question, on TopTal.com, they can hire you a Pascal developer. Wow. Hire a top Pascal developer 
right here still uh still still needed <laughs> still needed in some way or another that's a rabbit hole i have to go down oh yeah these people have pascal listed as a programming language that they can can write in there's tons of them oh i scrolled there's not tons of them there's like 10 i scrolled down this guy There's still opportunities out there if you're a pascal programmer feeling wayward all of them look over 40. would there have been a time that anybody under 40 would have ever had to use pascal i can't imagine right oh pascal developer that's crazy yeah that we we me and uv went to school together and we basically used that class and we just hacked the teacher and did all kinds of stuff. Like we, it was, you know, thinking as like a teenage hacker, like I was very creepy, very cringy and creepy. I was dating this girl in high school. So I might've been like 16 years old and she worked at Domino's as a, you know, telephone operator. So she would, you'd call and she'd be answer and, you know, take your order and get your pizza. And so I hacked Domino's and they had uh, one of those default Unix accounts like UUCP mm -hmm. where there was a default password. The default password is UUCP. I think that's the, that's the, the bug that they had, but I logged in and was able to see all of the employee records. And I called her and read off her social security number. Oh, you creeper. That I had. I was trying to show her how like cool I was. And I was like, hey, I don't even remember her name. Hey, you work at Domino's, right? She's like, yeah. I was like, is your address blah, blah, blah. She's like, yeah. I was like, do you make $8 an hour? Is your, is your social security number blah, blah, blah. And as you might expect, it impressed her zero. And I would imagine maybe kind of freaked her out. Uh, I would not imagine it did freak her out. I wouldn't want, I mean, if somebody called me and said that even now, I'd be like, Oh, what are we dealing with? But yeah, what? that's not, that's not romance to anybody out there listening. I guess nowadays they call it doing OSINT when you're an exceptional Googler or information gatherer, but this was, this was hardcore hacking. Yeah. People don't find that. She might've been more impressed if I'd changed her hourly rate. I didn't even, yeah, that would have been, that, that would have been a better offering. Yeah. I was like, Hey, you know what? We should, we should go out and you can pay next time because I just upped your hourly to a hundred bucks an hour. Maybe something a little bit more discreet. That could have gotten me a lot further instead of creeping her out. Yeah. Yeah. She probably thinks about that every once in a while now when she gets calls for about her extended car warranty or all the different call scams. She's probably thinking, you know what? It's probably Cody behind this. You know what? She's like, I, you know what? That dude, I missed my chance. I, he was so cool. Yeah. I don't, I don't think she's saying that. <laughs> that was the thing though was like to try to show how powerful you were yeah you know whether it was other hackers or other people in the underground you know showing off your shells like i got you know i i got a shell on nasa or nsa or something was kind of how you could show that or or deface a website yeah, that was always that was always an arms race that I thought was funny. It was just the the, the defacement era. People people never really taken it further than that, but always always putting on a fun show with those. It was annoying because I had to clean up a lot of those working at a managed hosting place, but would always catch a giggle watching those. I loved them. They they were they were kind of harmless, right? Yeah, yeah, just good clean fun. But you remember Intel, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, he he got in a bunch of trouble for hacking something. Flashnet. He put a, a Santa Claus hat on their logo. He said, "We got some hats now." He was referencing uh, "Fear of a Black Hat." 
No, yeah, and it was a, it was a fear of a black hat hat. Yeah, it's like striped, big, tall striped hat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, they said that he stole a bunch of credit card numbers. I don't know if that was ever proven, but the defacement was like how they got him. But supposedly, they had gone in and seen you know theft of credit cards. I, I have no idea how they would have done that in like ninety eight. Yeah, ninety nine. Yeah. Knowing what I know now about how hard it is, you know, in the early 2000s to even go back and track that. I don't know what kind of IR team they had at that ISP. Probably none. Is. Yeah, gi- given that we know everybody that worked there, I don't know how they determined it. But You worked at an ISP, right? I worked at their competitor, and I went and worked at FlashNet there yeah, for a long time. What was their competitor? DFWNet. That's, that's where I've... That was like my first official IT job. I was employee number three. What were you doing? Networking? Yeah, just support. I was just doing like slip and PPP support, WinSock support, helping people configure dial up basically for uh, Unix and PCs at the time. And then Justin Scott was doing all of the like the integration, the ISDN stuff, and configuring all the different Spark boxes that handled the modem banks and the frames. Oh, right, because you had those modems had to be all tied in, mm-hmm. but they were, were they like blades in a chassis no, or were they, they individual no, they were, modems? No, you had to buy like the individual, so you'd had to buy like 10 U.S. robotic 14.4s, and then there was, um, God, I don't remember the name of it, but there was an integrated device. It was basically like an early load balancer that would take in all the, you plug in a bunch of RJ45 to it, and then it would become like a phone bank for it. And it would just pick one that was open? Yep. <laughs> And then that went off to the, the some of the, the lease lines we had in there. And then the backhaul was a T1 or something? Multiple T1s, yeah. Yeah, it was awesome. That's how I, I worked for an ISP. I worked for Mindspring, which I think they were out of. It was... What was the ISP called before they were bought by Mindspring? They were really... The, the one in Carrollton? It's like net... Uh, dang it. It was off of 635 North. Yeah. Um, I can't were, remember it now, but... Yeah, they were one of the first big ones. Mindstring was huge. They were from yeah. Atlanta. Yeah. And then they acquired this company. And I was uh, I started off on sales, like outbound sales. No, inbound sales. People would call up and say, hey, want internet? You want some dial-up? Yeah, it was dial-up. No, I'm saying you're asking if they want some dial-up. Yeah, you want some dial-up, and we'd also offer like a, a hosted page. So you want oh, your yeah. own, you want your own Mindspring slash Tildy you know, Cody. So, yeah, exactly. And so we'd set all that up, and then I switched to tech support, and then I switched to system administration. So I took care of all those uh, home pages. Yes. It was pretty exciting. I mean, it was a cool place. Like uh, Chelsea worked there, and a bunch of people worked there. Yeah, that was a going up there. Was always see a ton of people up there. They had kegs. This was right is very early dot com. Very early dot com. Yeah. So there'd be kegs, and you couldn't drink until four. That was the rule. But it 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 no one ever followed it. Yeah. No. So and there was people in there drinking at like nine a.m. Yeah. And then it ended up being a bad idea later when too many people were getting drunk and trying to talk to end users. <laughs> hey, I'm sorry you're having trouble with your PPP. Yeah. Um, Can we reinstall your windsock drivers real quick? Yeah. Do you need TCP IP installed? Trumpet was the other one probably you Cra- had to deal with. Crazy to think that like TCP IP was an add-on to Windows 3.1. Was it three? Oh, yeah. yeah, it was three one Winsock. Yeah, you had to add that on. Did Windows ninety five have native TCP? I think it did. Yeah, it did. Yeah, pretty sure. Pretty sure it was three one or DOS. You had to you had to add the uh, TCP IP, mm-hmm. and then you were really cruising. Yep. What was the first big pipe you had around your house? Was ISDN? 
No, we had 56K when I was living with my parents. And then when I moved to downtown Dallas, they had a T1 that was shared with everybody in the apartment. That oh, was awesome. That's tasty. Yeah, it was awesome because it was a flat network and everyone connected to it was obviously in the same subnet. And then so it was right. all going out yeah. through the T1. So UV and I would just... SMB scan. S- yeah, oh yeah, SMB scan. And this is like my favorite vulnerability that ever came out was a flaw in the SMB authentication. I've tried to look for the CVE, but I, I can't find it. Anyhow, you could do just... If you got just the first character of the password mm-hmm. right, it would let you in. Yep. So a max of 26 guesses. And you, as long as you ended it with a null byte, <laughs> it would yep. let you in. So I modified the SMB client Unix package to basically just brute force and we would find everybody's SMB shares. Yeah, I thought it was any, any, you didn't have to have any character at one point, right? On one of them? The first null IPC one that came out, you just had to end it? Oh, I don't know. That's way better than what I was doing. But anyways, the one I was doing didn't take very long. Lots of S, lots of in-map, lots of SMB scanning, lots of shared drives. Uh, but that was the biggest pipe I ever had until cable got really popular. What do we at CDO? We just had cable, right? No, we had DSL. DSL. Yeah, that was before cable. That was before cable got onto it. Mark and I lived in the sub. This. It's actually the suburb I grew up in, Euless, Texas, which is like in between Dallas and Fort Worth. And we rented this house kind of random. We were in the, in like a neighborhood, like a planned neighborhood. And they had an HOA. And what was our landlord's name? I don't remember, but it, it's worth noting that we were in our early 20s and we were renting a house that's nicer than the house I live in now as an adult. Three it of us. Was yeah, it was a super nice house. It had those marble pillars in the hallway. They were faux marble pillars, but had all tile floors, two-story. Just why Why on earth did that lady ever decide that the three of us, cause I guess because we qualified financially, you know? Yeah, we, I mean, we, were, we, we paid on time. Yeah, oh, yeah. But oh, they yeah. had a HOA that would always fine us. For the cars, we always had parties. We always had people over. Um, it was a fun house, but we'd get fined for having too many cars. We never mowed or took care of anything. No. So they would fine us 50 bucks or, or whatever. Yeah, we paid out a lot of fines. One time they, they, they fined us for like a flag we left out that wasn't even displayed. It was like some random flag. Uh, it could have been a sports. I have no idea, but it was on our porch. And they sent us a bill for like 50 bucks for it for like a, because we didn't get it authorized. And I was like, what? and they would send it to the landlord, not us. Right. She's like, you're flying a flag. We're like, no, we're trying to stay low key here. We don't. <laughs> yeah. We don't want anybody like coming in or noticing us. Yeah. But it was, it was know, really didn't fun. Know, didn't know any of the neighbors. No, we'd stay up all day and night. We had turntables in there. We had like three turntables, a whole DJ set up because we also were in the, in the rave scene. I don't know if I, yeah, I guess I'd call it the rave scene, but we were all playing music, play Dungeons and Dragons, play uh, PlayStation, Magic the Gathering. Have you looked up the price on some of those Magic the Gathering cards? Yes. I, I, I love watching this stuff, like the Black Lotus. and How much is a Black Lotus worth? God, it's the tens of thousands of dollars. And there's even people still finding those like uh, alpha packs and, and beta packs, like the first runs of the Magic cards. And like some guy a couple of years ago pulled, pulled one out, like doing the reveal videos. And it was pretty interesting to see that go down. I couldn't imagine doing that now. Of course, now that nowadays they would make it a non-fungible chicken token or whatever. Non-fungible scam. The the Black Lotus Alpha 
in really good condition. Someone on eBay is selling this, so you know, there's not necessarily what they can get for it. Guess how much? Thirty grand. Ha! You were so. Yeah, that's try again. Higher. Fifty. Five hundred thousand dollars. Okay. Well, that's not what I expected. Good lord. And what Here's were the other ones? Like the the Mox Diamond was one, I think, is what it was called. They're called Black like Lotus the- was good because you could just add mana, add three mm-hmm. mana of any single color by tapping this. What were those called? Like the Core Nine or something like that. And it can be played as an interrupt. So you're basically starting out with three mana. You know what's also really shocking. And I tell Katie this. Katie is my wife, by the way, for the nobody listening, the zero people listening. Uh, Pokemon cards are insanely expensive. I never played Pokemon, but the Charizard from the first one is worth tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. Is Yu-Gi-Oh! Is that still a thing? Because that was popular there for a while. I wonder if that has the same value. Pokemon so... Like created its own subculture too, so uh, the price of those is just rabid fans. Yeah, tied to nostalgia. So Mm -hmm. I found what you might be thinking of the nine, the power nine, power nine. Yeah, that's what it's called. Power. So there's a Mox Sapphire, Max Sapphire. Why is this image so small? Uh, Mox Sapphire. Kind of ruby and a pearl. Those each add mana. Mox Jet. Mox Emerald. Black Lotus. Uh, and this person is trying to sell these for tens of thousands and can't take a high-res image. Lime Twister. Time Walk. Time Walk, yeah. That was ancestral. Ancestral Recall. Ancestral Recall. Draw mm-hmm. three cards. Or force opponent to draw three cards. Those are the power nine. These yeah, these cards. Uh, oh, here's an alpha chaos orb. Seventeen thousand dollars for a chaos orb. Flip chaos orb onto the playing area from a height of at least one foot. Chaos orb must turn completely over at least once, or it is discarded with no effect. When Chaos Orb lands, any cards in play that it touches are destroyed. That's that's powerful. That is powerful. And that's probably one that's hard to find in good condition. I don't like... That's I don't probably like ban- it's probably banned from tournament play now, though. That's I, what I'm that- sure it is, because any of these... What, I don't like any of these really complicated play mechanics. Like, I'm not going to sit there and try to flip a yeah. card to hit other cards. That's the recipe for people getting in a fight. Yep. Like, hey, man, you didn't flip it one turn. I didn't see it. I didn't see it touch the corner of this one. Yeah. I th- all of these that have, if I remember correctly, all of these that have that kind of instruction are not, you can't do it in a tournament. Yeah. For obvious reasons. Those other ones are still, you can play, use them in tournaments, which, which adds to the cost. A really cool images illustrations this chaos orb is a it's like a it's like a rock barfing lava i need to look at this now it's awesome in fact if if you could probably make a lot of heavy metal covers oh it looks like it looks like the the chromax cover for age of coral what it looks like so i was saying just there you go you need an awesome cover just go find a a magic card Mm mm-hmm Wow, look at that. Yeah, I, I never really... I watched y'all play a lot. I've, I played a little bit, but uh, for some reason, it, I just could not figure it out. I couldn't figure out a good deck. I love to play it. I miss playing it. I, I know that there's a bunch of online stuff, but it doesn't have that same... I played the arena and I played the Magic the Gathering online and it's fun because I like doing draft deck building and stuff like on the fly under pressure having to build stuff and then you know compete with it but it's, it's not like sitting across from your, your friends you know chatting shit and then 
they play some ridiculous card. It was it was fun to do the the like buy a pack and make a deck out of it. Yeah, the drafts. The drafts. Pass, yeah, booster drafts where you buy each person brings three three or so decks to the table and you just keep passing it around. And those like, are keep fun. the cards. Yeah, those are way fun. I need to get the I need to get my daughters into some kind of game like this. Pokemon might be better because they like cute stuff and we play uh, Maddie and I play um a game called Sushi Go. So there's all sorts of different uh, card building games out now. The Sushi Go, basically, you draw, you each draw a card, a, a deck, or a hand, sorry, uh, and it's got different components to build sushi and tempura. Uh, and then you have to swap hands and swap decks, and then you have to add them up. And each card is like a modifier to it. Like if you get, but you're wasabi, like you're like building real sushi. You just lay it down in front. Of, yeah, you're building like a sushi plate. That sounds uh, dumb. No, it's so much fun. I thought it was dumb too. I thought it was the the dumbest game. But the guy at the at the the, the card shop we go to assured us, and he's never. Where's he's, the fun in it though? Like you can't you can't kill people. It, it, well, you, you can. You can. You, you kill them with raw fish. You, str- you strategic. You strategic yeah, I'm gonna play. I'm gonna slip in some rotten tuna. Yeah, no, it's a kid and, game. It's definitely not. You're not building arms. You're not weaponizing the sushi. You're trying to build the best plate. How do build. you judge what's what's a good sushi? Uh, well, if you're salmon, I think it's like if you have the most salmon dishes, if you have all the different types of temp- tempura, like there's veggie and shrimp and a few other ones. If you have, um, oh, it's like uh, if you have a, an array of sashimi, they they bonus each other up. Um, I think I'll just stick with Pokemon. Yeah, well, the kids may find the Pokemon a little more interesting, but. They like they like the characters, and I think they're old enough. There's so for the for the people that may listen one day. I have two daughters, six and eight, and they love cute stuff. They like cute stuff, and I think Pokemon will work out. Go buy starters. You can still buy starter sets at like Target, like the boxed ones with the pre-built decks and everything. I'm going to spend $100,000 and just give them a raw Charizard. Okay. <laughs> see, see what happens there. Just videotape it. Videotape yeah. them with these rare cards. I think that would give a lot of people online uh, a lot of anxiety to see a child hold one of those cards just unfettered. Like, hey, what do you think of this little piece of cardboard? Well, that's legit though, right? Then, that's- the, then the crayons come out. That's who's supposed to yeah. Oh, yeah. hold those cards. Yeah. I say that, but I collect comic books and I don't, I, I let them, I let them play with all the comic books. The, any of the really expensive ones are in slabs, so they, they can't hurt that, but I'll let them. I've seen them take one. That's like 20 bucks. I forgot which one. And they completely destroyed it in five seconds. Start but, throwing mustaches on it. Yeah. Just bend it throw it on the ground. They love throwing things on the ground for some reason. But so in my, I, you know, in my opinion, I don't like think if, you grow out of that. If I can spend 20 bucks for them to be interested in comics, that's worth it to me. Yes. Yes. That's a small price to pay. And they're, they're meant to be read. She likes Bowie likes miles Morales. Oh yeah. The new, new, uh, Spider-Man. Does he have his own paperback? Does he have his own collection? Yeah. Probably. I haven't looked at it. They, but they watched some Into the Spider-Verse movie. Oh, yeah. Which is amazing. If you haven't, have you seen it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was great. They, they filmed it at 120 frames per second. So they had to animate, you know, three times, four times more frames than a normal animation. I read an interview with them when they were talking about, too, the way that they animated it if you go back and rewatch it with this in mind that the speed at which miles operates increases over time in the movie to show his advancement and his comfort with his abilities so at first you know his animations are kind of dodgy with what he does and then it starts getting a little more streamlined a little more faster they start his animations start at 30 frames per second yeah oh is that what it is yeah so he looks kind of glitchy almost Whereas Peter Parker's is at 120, so he looks smooth. Because he's already leveled up. 
Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it is really, really amazing. And uh, they love that. So I've been trying to get, you know, I've, I buy a Miles Morales Spider-Man when they come out and give it to Bowie. Well, dude, we've been uh, talking about nothing for an hour. That's good. I think we could probably end it here. Okay. Well, what do you think? It was good talking to you. I hadn't talked to you in almost 30 minutes. We're hoping to do this weekly. I know Mark doesn't want to, but it's good. I do. It's good. I do. Like you have anything else going on. Yeah. We need to get more interesting people on here because I want to hear how people got into their professions. They didn't have to be in cybersecurity. They just need to be hacker curious adjacent. Hacker curious. We certainly don't want this podcast to just be two middle-aged white dudes. So we need a mix. Yeah. Nobody wants to hear me talk that much. I'm only interesting to myself. Well, I mean, you know, it'll probably only be you and, and, and me listening to this for now. So well, I you hope can you just go it. to bed listening to yourself. I do that anyways. Just put your uh, <laughs> headphones on and drift off to your own voice. Oh, what a beating. Well, everybody, first podcast. I don't even know. We talked a little bit about how we got into stuff. Um, we will do some technical things, I suppose, as they come up oh, and yes. as they're relevant. But we also might detour into magic cards and comic books, and dare I say it, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. We could talk about that. If we have another five hours, Mark will love to share Brazilian jiu-jitsu with the world. Yes. But until next time, uh, thanks for listening, and I hope this let you down as much as we expected it to let people down. Yes, I'm sure it will. And we've delivered on that. That's yes. Under promise, under deliver. That's well, our there you podcast have motto. Under yeah. Alpha Wave After Hours. Yes. With your host, CEO of Alpha Wave, Cody Pearson, CEO of Alpha Wave, Mark St. John, paid for by Alpha Wave. Although we don't pay ourselves. So I don't think we'll have the money to pay for anything on yeah, this don't podcast. Look, don't, don't look for ads. No ads. And if the sound quality is terrible, we can't afford new gear. So 